So if you have your Bibles to hand, uh, please turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 6, and we're going to be reading from verse 1. So Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. When you leave, as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent, and drove out many demons, and anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the theme of uh, the year has been growing in discipleships, a year of discipleship. And uh, that's the theme that we're picking up here in uh, Mark's Gospel. And it's true to say that um, we often grow when we are in a difficult situation, when we face difficult things. And as we look at this passage, I want us to notice the key word, offence. It's there in verse 3, and they took offence at Jesus. The word is scandalon, which is where we get to our English word scandal uh, from. The people of Jesus' hometown were scandalised by Jesus of what he did and what he said. Verse 2 tells us that many people heard Jesus and were amazed, but others were offended. This wasn't new. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, we read the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Even his own family were trying to restrain Jesus. Chapter 3 verse 21 says, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. In this um, passage that we've had uh, read, I want us to think about two things. Firstly, why was Jesus so offensive? That's verses 1 to 6. And then secondly, how are we to be lovingly offensive? 
and that's verses 7 to 13. But before we do, let's pray together. God our Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word that is living and active, and we pray that you'll help us to know what it means to be a disciple as we look at this passage together. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, why is Jesus offensive? What led his hometown to be scandalised by Jesus? Well, let's pick it up in verse 2, if you have your Bibles open. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Now, what's going on here? Well, let's first of all remember Mark is writing this gospel to tell us that Jesus is the son of God. It's, It's about the identity of Jesus. So could Jesus be the Messiah? And there's something about um, the kind of very ordinariness of Jesus that prevents his hometown seeing who he really is. In effect, they're saying, nah, this this can't be the Messiah, the Saviour, because, well, this man is so ordinary, so plainly a, a, a man. And you see, that is what firstly offended them because offended their normal way of thinking about the saviour. They thought it was more of a kind of superhero, a kind of warrior, someone with great power and prestige and wealth. That's the kind of messiah they were expecting. You see, in all other um, religions, the saviour is supposed to liberate us from the ordinary human existence, in a kind of grand escapism to a utopia, kind of getting away from the very orderliness of life, of sleeping and eating and working. This kind of salvation, though, releases, uh, kind of releases from the orderliness of, to the kind of ethereal, the kind of some place of nirvana. But of course, that's not Christianity, actually. Salvation is not escapism from the world. It's actually the transformation of the world. It's about the resurrection of the world. It's entirely bodily. Think about Jesus and who he was. He's the the son of God who came down from the extraordinary into the ordinary, into the human existence immersing himself in the ordinary of walking and eating and working and sleeping and partying. He made himself, of course, vulnerable in that. He felt the fragility of life and human existence. I mean, you could just walk up to Jesus, couldn't you? You could could hug him, but of course you could also slap him round the face as well, because he felt pain. He felt isolation of humanity, and he did that as he redeemed it. It's only a couple of weeks, isn't it, after 
Easter, when we read that famous passage in Luke 24. And what did we see there? Did we see Jesus kind of whizzing around in a kind of superhero state, in a limousine? No, we see a man walking along a road um, to Emmaus, a very ordinary thing. We see a man eating fish by the lakeside with his friends. Ordinary stuff of life. You see, the purpose of resurrection is a deeply physical one of the ordinary things of life. Of course, many of the things of life that we're missing so much at the moment, the kind of eating together, the, the, the partying um, together, the walking, um, the hugging, the, the things that we long for, that we want to last forever, that we don't want to see decay. And I suspect these ordinary things of life are actually, in fact, the most endearing things in life. You know, those kind of barbecues in the park with family or friends, sitting in the sun, admiring the song of of birds in the air, playing sports with the kids, in the park or walking along a beach without a care in the world. That's what we most long for at the moment. And it's because that's what we're really made for. No other religion has this goal for salvation. The ordinary made extraordinary by the one who was extraordinary, who became very ordinary for us. That's what the cross and the resurrection points us towards. For believers, if you're a believer, this is our sure hope. But for others, it's offensive. Because people in Jesus's day and people today still want a saviour who kind of takes them away from the ordinary world in a kind of superhero state, a kind of warrior place. So that's the first reason that caused an offence. But there's another reason, and perhaps a more profound um, reason, and it's found in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And like me, when you heard that, you probably missed it when when you first read it. But this is a massive put down, really. Verse three, isn't this Mary's son? Why is this a a put down? Well, this is a a deeply uh, traditional culture in which the name of somebody means everything. It shows that you have heritage. It shows that you have lineage. It shows you where you've um, come from. Everyone in those days was traced, you see, by their father, never their mother. No one would ever say, Jesus, son of Mary, unless to call someone Mary's son was to make a point, a very pointed point. This is Mary's son. That's what they're saying. This is Mary's son. Uh, You know Oh, Mary's son, I see. The one married in June, baby born in September. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
everyone had done the maths. People never forget this kind of thing, especially in a small town in a deeply traditional culture. This is a scathing put down. Jesus the Messiah? But we don't even know who his father is. Really, couldn't be. It could be, uh, he could be, Joseph could be his father. Who knows? We don't know. And of course, what they're doing is they're questioning that Jesus is illegitimate. And in that society, that, that simply meant you had no heritage. You had no lineage to go by. You were a kind of nobody, a kind of nothing. How offensive. How offensive it is to those people to think that this person could be claiming to be the Messiah. You see, that is why the people were so scandalised by Jesus. We kind of listen to that and uh, we sense how unfair that must have sounded. He didn't deserve this kind of treatment. And yet it shows us again just how scandalous that the, the, God's grace to us is. Because this is what he came to do. This is the very thing that he came to do. Because on the cross, Jesus really became the man without a father. He cried on the cross, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, Jesus was rejected so that we would not be rejected. He stood in our place and took the penalty for our sin, took the punishment for everything we had ever deserved for turning away from God, our maker. And he did it. He did it so willingly. He did it out of love. He was rejected so you and I could be accepted. In a sense, he lost his father so that we could have a father, a heavenly father. He caused offence so that we wouldn't be an offence to God. And of course, if we believe now we have a name, now we have a father. We are sons and daughters of our heavenly father. And of course, with a lineage, a heritage, an inheritance that it, it, to match. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of our dear brother, John Hegg. What a dear man, a lovely man. And as I think about that inheritance, he is right now enjoying that inheritance with his heavenly father. And I'm sure in these difficult circumstances, he is cheering us on all the way. You see, when we realise these things, when we realise this is what changes us and also it's what commissions us out, even those who are offended by Jesus, we're now called to go and share this faith. So they firstly, they were offended because they saw how human, how ordinary Jesus was, that he was a, a man. And because uh, they were offended also because they questioned his legitimacy, that he was illegitimate. 
But now I want to move on and to the second question: How are we to be lovingly offensive like Jesus? And this is where verses seven to thirteen come in. Now, in these、um, verses, there's just no way of kind of sugarcoating what Jesus is saying here. Um, when we follow Jesus, we are going to cause offence. That's what we have to come to terms with. But as we think about that, it is a loving and selective offensiveness. There's no kind of a bombastic shoot from the hip kind of mode here. When Jesus sends uh, them uh, out in this passage in verse seven, he gives them instructions. And they're not the instructions at all of a sending people as a, a warrior or some sort of superhero in a combative mode. Not at all.、Um, it's not like sending somebody out in a big power suit、uh, with a clipboard. It's not that kind of sending. Listen into verse eight. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that house. So the question is, why so little? Take why take so little、um, with us? And well, Jesus wants them to rely on hospitality. He wants them to rely on hospitality. Now, why does he want them to do that? Well, you see, hospitality in Jesus' day was a very significant and important thing. To come to their village, to come to their home, and rely completely on their hospitality, was a sign of great humility and of great respect for the people that you're going to. Now, secondly, they not only、uh, are instructed to proclaim a message, but in this to act to serve the people, and you get that in verse seven, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. You see, they're serving, but despite this serving, Jesus says that you're going to cause offence. Why? Because you also have a message to give. What was the message? Well, the message is there in verse twelve. They went out and preached that people should. Repent, to turn from living in rebellion、um, to God, and turn back to Him in faith. Now this message will cause offence, and He says you may have to shake the dust off your feet as a sign. What is that sign all about? Well, it was a kind of cultural way of saying you are now responsible for what you've heard, for what. I have shared with you for the message I've passed on. You're responsible. It's no longer on my shoulders; it's on your shoulders. I want us to now just draw back for a moment and try and piece some of this together. You see, Jesus is saying, on the 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 one hand, he he is saying, you should be incredibly、uh, attractive. In the sense that you should be serving people, you should be helping them, you should be loving them sacrificially. And yet, on the other hand, he's telling them that they need to share the message of repentance, to turn to Jesus, 
as he's the only Lord and Saviour of the world. And that's the message that's going to cause offence. Now, the church, the, the, the people of God, the people who follow Jesus as his disciples, have always had, you see, this, this kind of mixture of attraction and offence. You see, on the one hand, the message of Jesus is the most exclusive message. It's exclusive because Jesus says he, that he's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only one to life, to eternal life. He is the only way. That is an exclusive message. That offended people in the first century, and it continues to offend people today. To make that kind of exclusive claim that Jesus is the one we all need to turn to, to save us from sin and death. But you see, on the other hand, the followers of Jesus are to be the most inclusive, inclusive in the way that they act towards other people. Acting towards other people in caring for them, caring for the diseased and the dying, um, being kind to both people who are considered good and those who are considered bad people alike. Loving every single person from every tribe and every nation and every creed and colour and class. The most exclusively sounding and yet the most inclusive acting. Do you see, see what's, what's happening? Um, in the most incredible way, incredibly attractive and yet incredibly offensive together. And it rightly um, confounds people uh, today as it did um, then. And exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do. And it's the same for us if we're followers of Jesus. What does it mean for us as we conclude? What does it mean for you? How do you feel this morning about following Jesus like this? If you've never been lovingly offensive, you know, never been kind of rejected for because of trying to share your faith with those around you at school or at work or at home or with colleagues, could it possibly be because we're being cowardly, sort of hiding the truth from people and the need that they have to repent and have faith in Jesus? Could we be being cowards, never taking that moment when it comes, when it, God gives us it, to speak up with gentleness and respect? But maybe on the other hand, that you are always offending people, constantly kind of falling out with folk, always in a kind of combative mode about your faith. Could it be because that you're actually just being obnoxious and you're just being harsh about it? I think most of us fall off on one side or the other in this. And I know I, I do. I do all the time. I think that might be why Jesus sends them two by two. Um, because when you're with two, you can compensate for each other's um, weaknesses. Of course, the only person who has ever got this right is Jesus himself. Perfectly loving and kind 
and amazingly attractive, who came to bind up the broken-hearted, to befriend the lonely and the downcast, and yet at the same perfectly righteous, who said things really straight and told people the way things were and why he had come, that he had come to seek and to save the lost, calling everyone to repent and believe in him before it was too late. You see, we will fail at being lovingly attractive, uh, lovingly offensive. We will fail at it because, of course, we're not Jesus. We can't possibly live that beautifully balanced life. But as we follow Jesus, his likeness will become uh, more and more evident in us acting in love and speaking in truth, so others have the opportunity to trust in him. So if you're a a disciple, if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, are you willing, are you willing to both be attractive in the way that you act towards everyone, being that kind of inclusive, and yet being prepared to be offensive, exclusive in speaking the truth of the gospel. And I think, I think, I really believe the more we gaze upon the life of Jesus, the one who was so attractive in the way he served others, the way he served us by dying to save us from sin, and the one who has the words of eternal life, the one who has the words of truth, who calls us to turn now to follow him. As we think about that, the more and more we will grow in discipleship. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. And we thank you for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We thank you that he shows us that we are to both be uh, loving and attractive and to care for others, and yet also to be bold in speaking the truth of the gospel, to call people to repentance and faith. Help us, we pray, um, to follow Jesus and to speak that truth in love to others around us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.